1: welcome to beyond politics on wkxl AM, and fm we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts and if you're listening on podcast please subscribe and like us tell your friends share on social media i'm your host paul hodes with my co-host matt robeson and we have an interesting discussion today because we're asking whether something might be fundamentally wrong with American journalism. On the right, there's fake news propaganda. But on the left, a growing number of experts believe that something has gone very badly off track. Our guest today says that what's happened is that mainstream news isn't liberal anymore. It's woke, propagating radical ideas that were fringe as recently as a decade ago. So is this real? And how big a problem is it? Our guest, Batya Ungar sagan is the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek. Before that, she was the opinion editor of The Forward, the largest Jewish media outlet in America. She's written for The New York Times, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, New York Review of Books Daily and other publications. She is well-versed in media appearances, having appeared numerous times on MSNBC, NBC, Brian Lehrer, NPR, other media outlets She holds a Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley. She spent a lot of time in Israel. Her new book is Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Bacha, welcome to Beyond Politics.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. I'm humbled by the invitation, and I'm also extremely, extremely grateful because You know, my work seems to be appealing very much to the right, Um, and I am a lefty, I'm a socialist, and I really feel that my message is for liberals who have lost the plot, and so I'm extremely, extremely grateful for this opportunity to address you and your listeners and to have this wonderful conversation.
1: Yeah well you know it's it's sometimes hard for liberals to hear something which might cross their hairs just a little bit how what are you hearing out there how how are things being received by our brethren on the left our brethren honestly, and frethren I should say
2: <laughs> honestly when i can get the hand the book into the hands of people like that i think it's it's really resonating i think a lot of people a lot of people on the left and a lot of liberals feel that something has gone wrong something is amiss that the conversation has changed very radically and not necessarily in a good way. And so I give my book to people and the response I get very frequently is relief. Like, oh, wow, I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who is seeing this stuff. And I think it helps a lot that um, my critique of wokeness is very much rooted in how important I think the fight against racism is and how I think that the woke language is a way of eclipsing the fight against racism as well as a way of perpetuating inequality that benefits affluent liberals. That's the argument of the book. I'm sure we're gonna get into that. So that, that I think is very important for People when they get my work is like, oh wow, like yes, we're right that there's something amiss, and that doesn't make us bad people. That doesn't mean that we are racist. It means that we think that this movement has somehow changed the conversation in a way that makes the vulnerable more vulnerable rather than less. Does that make sense? It, it does, does make sense. Yeah, let, no,
1: you go, Paul. Hey, Matt. Yeah. Let me just let me just <laughs> let me just follow up because so much to
0: talk about here. Yes, go. I,
2: I, I,
1: I, there, there's a lot. I just want to see if I can uh, unpack that a little bit for me because. I'm not as quick as Matt. He's the smart one. And I, you know, I'm just not as quick, but you say that mainstream news isn't liberal anymore. It's woke. And I, I'm, can you just unpack for us a little, um, uh, more in lay terms, how you define woke, because it's gone from, as, as as you've implied, a catch-all term for awareness of racial injustice to a pejorative. Uh, it implies that someone is a bit of a progressive radical, and and it, it's leaving liberals out in the cold. Am I woke enough? Should I be woke? Maybe I'm not Maybe I am woke, but I don't know it. Well, maybe I can't be woke because maybe woke is is a bad thing. How do you use it? Um, How do you use it? What does it mean? And what does it mean to be woke and not liberal? Or are they mutually exclusive?
2: Okay, so I'm so glad you asked that. It's such an important question. The term woke started as Black slang for staying awake to to racism, especially state-sponsored racism, right? And obviously, I believe that is a truly sacred mission, the, the fight against police brutality. Anywhere where racism is still being sanctioned by the state, that every... American of conscience, that should be their number one issue. The problem is, is that wokeness today is not about things like police reform, it's about defund the police, a position that 81% of black Americans oppose. So when I say wokeness, what I'm referring to is a moral panic about race that makes Everything about race. It's the worldview popularized by people like Ibrahim X. Kendi, for example, who says that everything is either racist or fighting racism. So every moment that you're not actively talking about racism and fighting racism, you are being racist in that moment. And to me, what we're seeing in liberal institutions, especially the media, is this obsession with race at the expense of the true divide in America, which is a class divide. And what I argue in my book is that this obsession with race protects the interests of affluent white liberals. Because while the moral panic around race doesn't actually fight racism, it doesn't actually get us police reform, what it does is an excellent job of hiding the real divide in America, which is the class chasm. And in hiding this divide, it allows liberals, many of whom are affluent today, to maintain a deeply unequal meritocratic status quo that has favored them tremendously. That's the argument I make in the book. Does that make sense?
0: Wow. It does make sense. And <laughs> I just, oh boy, there that's such a rich description with so many angles that I want to follow up on. But let me, before, before we dive any deeper in, <laughs> let me kind of stay 30,000 feet for just a moment more, because I do think it's important, often when talking about the media. And I'm air quoting here intentionally because it's a big term that, as you know, as a member, as a leader in the media, is, is really a catch all for, for something that's very, very diverse and very different. And so when we talk about the media, frequently in media criticism, for one thing, people cut out half the media, the media that actually gets more eyeballs and more earballs and more attention, which is conservative media. Fox News. I'd even throw the Wall Street Journal in there to some degree, and certainly conservative radio, which is a big deal in America. Um, now, you're, you're clearly not talking about them because they haven't <laughs> become woke. Are you talking about, when you refer to the mainstream media, kind of the big banner outlets like CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, those kinds of... Or are you also including some of the smaller regional print and online outlets? Are you talking about the salon.coms and Voxes of the world? What, What falls into this rubric of outlets, media institutions that have become woke?
2: That is such a great question. Thank you so much for that question. And it gets to the heart of the argument I make, which is that most of what we call a partisan divide in America today is actually a class divide. And I think in the media outlets you laid out, we tend to think of those as being distinguished by their politics, right? CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, Washington Post, and then Fox News and talk radio the thing that actually divides them is not so much politics. Although of course today they're politically divided, but the thing that really divides them is class. If I watch CNN and Fox News all day long, I have them both up on screens, right? It's part of my job as an opinion editor to follow where the conversation is going. And the thing that distinguishes them more than anything else is whether the person that they are imagining as their viewer, as their audience has a college degree or not. That's the number one thing that distinguishes them. And you can see this both in the data of who watches them, right? So only 25% of Fox, Viewers has a college degree, very similar for talk radio, although talk radio has a higher income because they, you know, rich people without a college degree will also sometimes listen to talk radio, right? So so income and class are correlated, but not entirely, not 100% with income. Um, and then when you look at an outlet like, like CNN, you can literally track the attrition of. Um, people without a college degree as they got more woke. So as the language of wokeness became to really dominate the liberal national media outlets that you mentioned over the last 5-10 years, the, college, uned, the people without a college education who were who were liberal, right, who were coming to CNN or you know coming to outlets like that in order to get their news, they've sort of there's been a total attrition. They can no longer see their values represented in these outlets, despite the fact that a lot of them may be Democrats. So I'll give you another um, surprising statistic: uh, one in three Black Americans um, in 2019 got election news from Fox News, wow. right? Yeah, 36%. The New York Times, only 10% of Black Americans turn to the New York Times for their news, right? Now that's shocking, right? If you're a person who thinks that everything in America is about race and politics, right? That's very surprising statistic. But the argument I make in my book is that from an aesthetic level, as well as from a political level, the real divide in America is about class. It's about Whether you're part of a highly educated elite who is increasingly the Democrats new base, or whether you're part of the increasingly diverse working class who Certainly, Donald Trump saw as his base. Now it's sort of a question whether his right-wing populism is going to have a future in the in the Republican Party or not. So I would say that that is exactly the question. I am talking about the liberal national news media, but but in terms of like the New York Times or Vox, they are all they're both going for the same audience now. Everybody's going for that same audience of like you know 35 to 60, making at least a hundred thousand dollars a year, preferably much much more, right? coastal liberals, like that is the everybody wants that same target audience now. And and I start the book with um, um, the 19th century, which was, you know, the last time we saw such a huge uh, income inequality in America. And the reason I start there is because there were two journalists who looked at the stark income inequality in America, and and they said, journalism exists to, to fight this, Journalism exists to be a crusade on behalf of the poor and the working class, and those were Joseph Pulitzer and Benjamin Day, who were sort of the fathers of the penny press. You know, they said newspapers should be about, by, and for the poor and the working class. And and they, the thing about them was they weren't nonpartisan; they were very partisan. But they were partisan on behalf of the poor, and we just do not have that today. So as the you know we've had this great squeeze in America, right? That's erased the middle class downwardly mobile working class people and pushed a lot of affluent liberals into the top 10%. So the liberal media has completely focused on that top 10%, which left a you know completely captive audience for, for Fox News and the conservatives to pick up the working class. I'll just make one more point, which is that I don't pretend that Fox News has you know, the economic interests of the working class at heart. They don't. They go all in on culture war issues. However, and here's the point, you know, the Democrats were really at the forefront of globalization, right? This was not something that was done exclusively by Republicans. And the point that I like to make is that it's true, Fox News and Republicans, they really don't have the economic interests of the working class at heart, but at least they don't insult their values while abandoning them economically. And I feel that that is very much what happened over the last 30, 40 years as the Democrats has really have identified college educated voters as their new base. Okay, I'm going to stop there and let you guys respond because there's like so yeah. Okay, so <laughs> right, no so, wait, wait
0: Paul, now I got to do it to you cuz I got I got to ask a, a burning uh, a burning question with this. Not a Bernie question, a burning question. It's kind of a Bernie question. it, it, it is, is, a,
1: it is of... a, burn, a Bernie question. Okay, Bernie,
0: Bernie, Bernie, listen, I, I I'm, I'm actually going to connect back to the fact that Bacha is a socialist and you have you've compellingly presented this as a, a dichotomy that's happened because of class. And fundamentally what we mean there is because of economics. So I want to ask, you've you've described and I think provided a lot of evidence about what has happened. What is your sense after doing all the work on this book about why it's happened? I have a sneaking suspicion that it's economic, that the business model of outlets like CNN, New York Times, Mm -hmm. Washington Post is very much based around, look, it's why Dillinger robbed banks. They asked him, why do you rob banks? It's because that's where the money is. Well, if you're the New York Times and you're in this scrambled media landscape and you have to go online and you have to totally change your business model, you want to go where the money is. You want to go to the college educated voters and the, or readers. I'm, I'm politicizing this. And so you're going to speak in language that appeals to that small size. Is that what happened or or how <laughs> no, we get no, it? Now no, Paul, wait a you second. want to pile on. No, yeah,
1: no, I, I just it. want to I want to pile on because what you have just uh, illustrated, elucidated, illuminated, or verbalized is the space balls theory of politics, in media, merchandising and marketing. So it's Fox News, the lunchboxes, Fox News, the 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 action figure. Um, or, or that, that's really what you're talking about is the proclivity of infotainment to care more about merchandising and marketing and go where go where the money is. You're and right. and so if you if we follow the money. We follow the demographics of the audiences that, people are, that that the media is trying to reach because, as Bacia said, we're no longer concerned so much about the social standing or information that we're providing to uplift a, per, uh, a class of people, um, uh, the poor, the lower income, the people who really need the information. We're after marketing dollars.
2: So there's this sort of cynical read, and then there's the more generous read. And I, as a religious person, feel that the generous read is the better one. And also as a person who believes that every argument is a hostage negotiation between a person and their fears, believe that the most effective route is to argue the generous reading. Although in my weaker moments, and certainly in moments in the book, I have gone with the cynical reading. Um, So the generous reading is that uh, the media is populated by a lot of people whose hearts genuinely beat for equality and who feel very much that the you know, the most important inequality that exists in America today is racial. And that that is what we should be talking about all the time because it's the most important one and it's the most urgent one. And it's, this is how you fix it is by making white liberals think about it and talk about it all the time and call people who disagree with you racist. That's how you fix that problem, which is the burning problem. And, you know, to support the sort of like generous reading, you know, Yuval Levin recently said, said something on a podcast somewhere where he said, you know, he said, Washington would be a much easier place to navigate if everybody who showed up there showed up being kind of like, he he he, I'm going to sell out all my values for money and power, right? The problem with Washington is that everyone shows up thinking they're doing the right thing. And that's much harder to convince people out of or to come to compromise on. So, and I, I, it, I definitely think that on, on an individual level, the vast majority of the people making this error that I think is so disastrous are doing so from a place of purity of heart. Like they are not, don't see themselves as trying to accrue power. Even when you know politicians do it, I, I really think that, you know, they think they're doing the right thing. And, and that's the way we should address them. Now, at the same time, it is in, arguably in the interest of the top 10% to be pushing a moral panic around race in a way that distracts from the fact that they are extremely wealthy compared to other Americans and that money came from somewhere right, it is extremely beneficial to The New York Times economically to push a moral panic around race and to make their readers feel like the heroes of a social justice morality play while they are actually pursuing their own economic interests as rich people, right? That has made the New York Times a lot of money, okay? Like that is inarguably the case. In fact, it used to be, journalists have always been liberal, right? They've always been more liberal than other Americans. But while they were sort of pulling to the left, they had, they worked for corporations or for bosses who were either Republicans or very rich or both, right? Who were sort of pulling pulling in the other direction. And it used to be you would have a lot of towns in America that were sort of one shop towns. There was one newspaper in this town. And if that paper wanted to get 100% of the readers instead of 50% of the readers, it's news reporting had to be pretty down the middle of the road, right? Of course, we all know that about the collapse of the local news industry, which has led very much to the nationalization of our politics and to the nationalization of our media. Right so and in that sense, what happened was not just the collapse of the of the the industry, but moving digitally moving online what happened was is in online media right you measure success based on engagement. That's the metric of success, right? And, and we all know that the most engaged readers are always the most extreme ones. So it used to be the New York Times would measure success based on what other people in the industry thought based on whether they were getting, you know, a great, a a broad swath of American readers from, you know, different areas. Now it's measured by how many retweets an article gets. And in order to get a lot of retweets, you have to appeal to activists, and they're only appealing to liberals and the left. So they're going to be only appealing to those activists this. And so they've they've really outsourced um, the, the, um, the measure of success to what I call the worst place in the world, which is the internet, and to the worst place on the internet, which is Twitter. And Twitter mobs end up taking up a lot of space and end up even forcing the New York Times into certain edits, et cetera.
0: So I want to expand on where we were going in those first few questions, because I think we've circled around the core question here, but maybe haven't put our exact finger on it. So I want to put it to you. Why is all of this bad? If we stipulate that there is indeed among the major mainstream media outlets who are not conservative, who are not Fox News, who are not right-wing talk radio, if there really is a move toward wokeness, why is that bad?
2: Uh, It's such a great question. And I would even add to the question how could that be bad for people who care about fighting racism? Like, I think that that's even a really important aspect to it because, of course, it is, like we said in the first segment, a sacred, sacred duty of every American to care about finally eradicating every last vestige of state-sponsored racism. Um, I would argue for a number of reasons. Um, The first is that I truly believe that it perpetuates inequality. I think that wokeness and a woke moral panic being perpetuated by the media is the last stage of what has been a status revolution among journalists so a hundred years ago journalism was a working class trade it was something that you know you really didn't go to college for a lot of journalists hadn't even finished high school you would learn the thing on the job i mean you can't really teach somebody how to be a good listener right how to how to challenge their priors. We know certainly today in universities, they're not teaching people to challenge their priors, right? So, you know, it was a working class trade. You would have journalists who, you know, would live in working class neighborhoods and they were not making a lot more money than let's say their neighbor, the cop, you know, and they were embedded in the fabric of American life. Over the last hundred years, what happened was was it was sort of a great sequestering of journalists. Journalists underwent a status revolution. We simply rose along with other highly educated liberals into the American elite. And along with the collapse of the national news, you ended up having um, journalism become a very, very small industry that is very, very hard to break into and that requires a lot of family privilege in order to do so. Of course, of course there are exceptions. There are certainly working class journalists out there but they are very much the exception to the rule because there's so few journalism jobs, Journalism jobs can be very choosy about who they pick and data supports the idea that they are increasingly choosing people from Ivy Leagues, from from a very tiny, tiny segment of the American elite. It's essentially a rich person's job today. And, and, And what I argue is that this woke revolution is sort of the last step in that status revolution. It's a way for an elite to act like it's fighting for the little guy when actually what it's doing is using a very highly- um specified language to perpetuate a conversation that masks the real divide which they're benefiting from right the the economic divide in America so it perpetuates inequality by hiding that divide and it also does nothing to fight racism so I opened with the example of you know police reform which is something we desperately desperately need the data shows that you know while police officers are not more likely to shoot to kill Black people, they are more likely to insult them. They are more likely to lay hands on them. They're more likely to put them in handcuffs. They're more likely to push them up against a wall and to, and to beat them up. I mean, this is a disaster. This is a moral disaster. This is one of the most important issues in America that we need to be talking about. But instead of talking about that, the New York Times will run thousands and thousands of articles about George Floyd, who was killed horrifically, but in an instance that it turns out is not something that happens very much, and then demand defunding the police, which is something that Black Americans do not want, right, and then they will actually block Uh, police reform using the filibuster back in the day against Senator Tim Scott in favor of something like defund the police, right? So what you have is a group of affluent white liberals pushing an agenda that sounds good, right? It's symbolically very satisfying. It flatters the egos of highly educated liberals. But what it actually does is it does not solve racism. It hides a class chasm in America and it perpetuates inequality. It will do nothing to disrupt their position in the top 10%. Now, I just want to now again, give myself what what we Jews call muster, like a little bit of a talking to here because I I just deeply descended into the the cynical reading. And I just want to say again, I think a lot of people pushing the moral panic, they truly, truly, their heart truly beats for justice and they truly see themselves as on the side of the moral arc towards justice. But when I think about, you know, where the great civil rights movement needs to go today, it's not towards taking the police out of Neighborhoods that desperately need good policing—it's towards identifying a class chasm in America, and identifying the working class of all races, and speaking to them in their language and listening to what they have to say—and it's very, very, very different from what you know the left is pushing today. The left's agenda today, I find, to be very much in line with sort of like highly educated Ivy League education, you know, and 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 very much apart from the people who I really think we should be focused on. So, again, it's just my plea to liberals once again about about why they should care about this as well.
1: So in 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 messaging, in political messaging and semantic uh, terms, the cry defund the police was perhaps a. Uh, the greatest gift of the left to the right, um, it enabled the right to paint um, everybody on on the left, people who care, people who, who who wanted to care, people who wanted at least to be perceived as caring as <laughs> as crazy crazy radicals who wanted to do away with law enforcement so that criminals could run. Uh, rampant. This was a wonderful gift to Fox News. Now, political science, Roy right, Sarah wrote recently of a, what we call the Fox News fallacy, which he defines as the idea that if Fox News criticizes Democrats or liberals for X, then there must be absolutely nothing to X. And the job of all Democrats is to shout as loudly um, and often that there's nothing to X. In other words, he's saying that just because Fox News criticizes something... That doesn't mean it isn't at least partially true. (laughs) So when it comes to the assertion that mainstream media has become woke, how do you go about making the case in the book that that's actually so? It's really true. And it's not just a Fox News creation that liberals can easily Dismiss and pass off as just another attempt by Fox News to paint us with the bad brush.
2: It's a great question. Um, Actually, I didn't have to do any work on this at all because a group of sociologists has simply been mining the data of all of the major news organizations and they have a quantitative analysis that shows just the absolute skyrocketing of words like police brutality, white privilege, racism, Islamophobia, and all of the sort of woke words. And lest you think that, well, maybe there is actually a rise in all of these things. I mean, the data clearly shows that Americans over the last 15, 20 years, especially on the right, have undergone seismic change on issues of race and on issues of sexuality and gender. I mean, the the left just won all of those culture is actually a long time ago it seems to me um, but I think more importantly than that you know so if if it's about rising you know if, if the media is doing its job and just reflecting a rise in racism a rise in police brutality whatever then why did the word slavery skyrocket right like surely we're not getting any closer to the institution of slavery right it's it's a it's a woke moral panic and it was cooked up by the media and it started around the time that the New York Times went digital I mean and you can clearly see the back and forth between SEO traffic and search work and keywords, and I mean, every day you go on Twitter, look at the five t- top trending topics. You'll see news articles about all of them in all of the publications. They're chasing that digital traffic. And like I said right before the break, they they they're, they have outsourced what counts as good journalism to the question of engagement, to what is driving the most engagement online, which means what's being you know what's being loved by the kooks on either side of of, of the parties.
0: Well, that's interesting because it suggests that truly the tail is wagging the dog here, in the sense that. You you have, as you put it, outsourced editorial decisions, high level editorial decisions about the focus of coverage in the newsroom and the tone and slant of the ed board and the types of guest essays. I guess they euphemize that in the New York Times. They don't call them op eds anymore because right. apparently that's no good. You got to call them guest <laughs> essays. Fine, all right, guest essays. So you know you you have a selection bias, a selection criteria. And look, I read the New York Times guest essays. And I can tell you this is not, this is witless empiricism, as my econometrics professor put it to me 30 years ago. But like, I can can tell you that, yes, there is definitely a tonal shift toward woke language. But let me ask you about this set of high profile incidents in newsrooms where certain journalists like Donald McNeil Jr., who was a recent guest on this show, Barry Weiss, Matthew Iglesias, Andrew Sullivan, who I'm a fan of, by the way. I mean, he's a conservative. I love his writing and I have migrated with him to Substack. Writers like that have been pushed out or they've on their own kind of jumped or a little bit of both because in some way they didn't fit in with the outlets editorial culture or they got embroiled in an incident that became a discussion about, well, was this racist? Was this against some type of moral code? So my question for you is, is this a symptom of what you're pointing to in terms of wokeness infecting these media outlets, or is it something related but different? And I just want to append to that question the proposition that, look, if truly these outlets are The dog being wagged by the tail of engagement, eyeballs, you know, driving the conversation, drawing attention. You know, there is a saying that there's no such thing as bad publicity, and one would think that it would actually behoove the New York Times to hold on to Barry Weiss, even if it's going to do nothing but generate hate Twitter, because it's going to draw engagement. It's going to. So, is it the case that that these kinds of things are related? Or is it something else going on?
2: In a word, yes. <laughs> um, these are This is definitely part of it. Um, I mean, there's been a mass deplatforming of conservative voices in outlets that used to pride themselves on having, you know, people from both sides. In fact, I think Newsweek now is maybe one of the few places that will still consistently run every single day people from all sides of the political spectrum. Um, I am less worried about all of these extremely successful journalists who have all clearly landed on their feet. Uh, I mean, Barry has become an absolute media empire. She's doing amazing work. Uh, Each of them is really succeeding very well and much more worried about the mass deplatforming of working class Americans who tend to be more conservative for a host of socioeconomic reasons. Um, That worries me a lot more. And that's been going on for 30 years. Um, But certainly, yes, the fact that the New York Times didn't run a single op-ed by a voter in the run-up to the election, in the six months running up to the election that we were told every single day was the most important election of our lifetimes, we, if you wanted to know how a Trump voter thought and why they were voting for him, you could not find that out in the paper of record. And of course, whenever they sent a journalist out to Trump land, they would inevitably sort of smear them as racist somehow, find some excuse, you know? Um, so I, I think, yes, it's very, very related. The question on, on the economic front, like, well, isn't it, you know, aren't you getting good clicks from, you know, hate clicks? So what happened with Barry, what happened with Donald McNeil, um, what happened with Tom Cotton was essentially that they these people were all bullied out of the New York Times by their own colleagues on Twitter. <laughs> and the problem there was not so much that um, the New York Times leadership was doing what it has been doing as we've been discussing, which is following the bottom line. It was that they they had they caved before their own subordinates. They had no courage, they had no bravery to say we have actually standards and values and we're not gonna fire somebody just cause you don't like something he said to a group of kids two years ago that we promised the Pulitzer committee, there was nothing in it. And, you know, we investigated and found it was fine. So I think that is just um, a uniquely devastating um, message about the New York times leadership um, that to me is like even transcends, you know these economic pressures that we've been talking about. Um, yeah.
1: So okay, so here I am, your your average um, liberal mainstream elitist. (laughs) <laughs> Democrat with a little bit of political experience, I you know, raised in New York, moved to the bucolic countryside of New Hampshire. I reading the New York Times and I'm listening to this interview and I said, wait a second, maybe the New York Times goes a little further than I'm comfortable with in terms of uh, race and social injustice. I'm doing my part and you got the 1619 and all of that. But, you know, ah, uh, come on, that problem pales in comparison comparison. comparison to the propaganda and and nonsense on conservative media, especially, I mean, Fox News dominates cable, conservative talk shows dominate radio. I can't hear Robeson and Hodes anywhere except on KXL. I mean, it's all conservative talk radio. So what would you say to that argument? And, And what's the case that you make that mainstream Democrats should swallow their sensitivity and be concerned and read your book?
2: Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to respond to that question. It's just really a privilege to have somebody put it so well and give me the chance to respond. What I would say to that is, is that liberals are supposed to care about the little guy. And my argument is that the New York Times hasn't just like gone a little bit too far in the direction of doing that or doing it poorly. The thing that you're calling having gone a little bit too far is actually perpetuating the disgusting levels of inequality in this country that liberals are supposed to care about. The problem isn't that they ran thousands of articles about white supremacy in 2020. It's that those articles Are part of a cultural shift that has stigmatized and silenced the working class as racist and as rubes. And I'm talking about the working class of all races. So when your party has no room for the views of 50 to 80% of Black Americans, you are not actually doing the thing you think you're doing. In fact, you're making it impossible for them to get representation. And that's why I thought it was amazing to see a lot of minorities voting for Trump, not because I thought that he was a good president, but because I want to see. Democrats working for those votes instead of taking them for granted, for God's sake. So I would say that that's the first thing. And the second thing is really that I just have to say our democracy is at stake here. Like the language of wokeness is perpetuating an oligarchy. It is allowing affluent liberals to get away with being in the top 10% while acting like they are speaking for the bottom. And that is perpetuating oligarchy, which is the opposite of democracy. You can't have a democracy when 90% of the population is deplatformed and doesn't have their views represented by either party. And I think that that's really about both deplatforming the working class and just like not being able to hear conservative opinions without. Going crazy, like the idea that you know being um, pro-life is somehow beyond the pale now, like that—that that is that you know instead of just saying oh that yeah that's a legitimate position that I disagree with, that's considered now an act of violence, right? And you see this time and again this attempt to like to to render viewpoints that we as liberals or we as lefties or we as socialists find deplorable to render them. Um, unsayable or taboo. It's a way of de-platforming and taking away the voice and the vote of those who disagree with. And that's literally the opposite of what a democracy is supposed to be. And so I'll just say one more thing, which is that for your listeners who care about this, like you guys, you're not going to be able to change the media. Like, you know, I'm trying, people are trying. It's going to be slow going. What you can do is you can become a person who is a bridge to the other America, you can become a person who has people in their life who you disagree with who you treat with respect. Because the truth of the matter is, is when you log on social media and you start to feel rage at something somebody says that you disagree with someone is making money. That is why you're feeling that way because someone very smart has figured out how to weaponize your heart in a dehumanizing fight that turns the people you disagree with into subhuman. So you you have to become soldiers in this war on dehumanization. You cannot allow yourself to be co-opted by people who are literally making billions of dollars off of those feelings. That's what my book is about.
0: (laughs) Well, that's actually exactly where I wanted to go. I'm going to ask you what I call in my own brain, the G.I. Joe question. Now, when I was a kid, there was a cartoon on. I was never a fan of it. It was G.I. Joe. We all Uh remember somewhere in our cultural memory is G.I. Joe. And the tagline at the end of every episode, why do I know this? I didn't watch it, but whatever. (laughs) The tagline at the end of episode was, every episode was, well, now we know. And knowing is half the battle, okay? So Bacha Unger Sargon has laid out half the battle. Now we know, and knowing is half the battle. I think you've presented a very compelling case that I'm sure is absolutely slam dunked on the reader in your book, which I urge people to go out and get. Don't just listen to the synopsis in this fascinating conversation. Actually go out and buy this book because reading is good for your brain. But okay, so we've gotten half the way. What's the other half? You were mentioning a second ago, you know, like, like actually create connections with people who may have disagreements with you. That does sound good. But I mean, I subscribe to the New York Times because I still feel it's in my DNA that it's the paper of record, as you referred to it a moment ago. And I want to have access to all of it. I also subscribe to the Washington Post. So I am in hoc to the woke media. <laughs> Should I cancel my subscriptions? Should I get off Twitter? Should I no longer do Facebook? I, you know, it what is going to if we think that to some degree this is an engagement attention economy driven thing economics essentially is there a way that we as people can turn that equation around and make the incentive structure different for these media outlets?
1: What do we and do? Can, I, I just want and I just want to add because I'm I'm I, I'm slower than Robeson and I'm just trying to unpack some of the extraordinary things you said which go. So much further than just talking about the state of media, but go to the one of the core problem that Matt and I have often uh, talked about in terms of Democrats, the Democratic Party our democratic system and where we're headed. You have given us this extraordinary slant on an essential problem in our political life, but I digress. And Wait, Paul, re-
0: I, I just, just so I'm clear here, we have three minutes left in the show. I just asked Bacha to fix all of media and yeah. you want her to fix the democratic party. As Correct. Well yeah. Minutes.
1: Because, right. because to Fine. some, to some degree, to some degree, her book, highlights not just the media issue, but it highlights the problems with the party that caters to, is made up of an intellectual elite that likes to stay in its ivory tower, believing that it's doing all this good work when we are not able to reach across and engage those who disagree with us because it hurts our feelings. And so while Bacha will solve for us in her answer the how, how to fix media, the digital world, I'm looking... Further down the line, and what she's going to eventually tell us, and how to take over and fix the Democratic Party. You might as well keep
0: filibustering here, Paul, because we're we're now leaving
1: two (laughs) minutes. Two minutes to fix. I had to say it. I had to say. My
2: brain went there.
1: You got. You got two minutes to fix everything.
2: Well, anyway, thanks for having me. And (laughs) I do have an answer. I do have an answer. My answer is like it's. It's. It's really easy and it's really quick and it's really straightforward. It's just like, be kind, like more kindness, be kind people, be a kind person, be a good person, be a good person someone can disagree with. I had Trump derangement syndrome after he was voted in. I stopped going to the bar that I used to go to three nights a week because it was full of Trump voters. I love that bar. I'm back at that bar all the time, but I couldn't go there for a really long time until my rabbi, who's the best person I know, who's a man who literally takes his clothing off in the winter and gives it to homeless people when he sees them in the street. He told me he voted for Trump and I was shocked. And he was like, no, no, I like him. He's great. Like be the, a good person who somebody can meet and be like, well, if that person thinks that, I, I guess they're not all Nazis. I guess they're not all evil. Like I, I, just be that person for other people, be kind and do not allow your heart to be co-opted by people making money off of division. We're much more united than we think as Americans. We are much more united than we think and be that bridge.
0: Wow. Well, you know, I wrote an article two, two years ago saying you can't defeat deplorables by being insufferables. And (laughs) what I hear you saying, maybe we should stop being so we I'm including myself in the liberal elite. And my gosh, I'm a member of the media too. Wow. I am, truly, I am truly unredeemable as a human being because I fall, and oh my gosh, I have an Ivy League education. You're deplorably Correct.
1: insufferable. Listen,
0: <laughs> I, I, before I turn off all of our, our listeners by um, putting myself in every kind of category.
1: True confession. Look
0: down on, on the rest of America. I want to thank our guest, Bacha Ungar Sargon. The book it, it sounds like an absolute must read. It's called Bad News. Great title. Bad news how woke media is undermining democracy. For former Congressman Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. We're going to go reevaluate in our entire lives. Thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you so, so, so much for having me.